But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Uh, it's wonderful to read God's word and we trust the Lord will, will bless it to us. What do you do when you can't see people you really want to see? Uh, and you really feel the need to see them? Uh, and you feel a responsibility towards them? Well, this is the way uh, Paul was really uh, feeling. And in, in the section of chapter 3, when we get to it and when we read about it, uh, we'll discover that he comes to a decision that he's going to send Timothy to Thessalonica to find out what's going on. But we learn a lot about the way Paul feels and thinks in these verses. Uh, and in the verses that we've read just now, we notice that Paul is going to tell us what makes him tick. What are his ambitions? What is it he really wants? What are the deepest desires of his heart? What will really be important when life is over? And I think if we can pick those things out this evening and focus on them, they will hopefully help us uh, readjust or recalibrate or, or rethink through what is it that is really important in our lives. Uh, what are the things that we really uh, would give up everything else to make sure happened? Uh, and Paul's going to tell us something about his desire and his joy in verses 17 to 20. He's also going to tell, give us an explanation or give the Thessalonians an explanation as to why he hadn't got back there. And we'll think about that a little bit more when we get down to verse number 18 because he says, I had planned, I would have come to you once and again or once and twice. I, I would have come more than once but Satan hindered us. And we'll need to think a little bit about in what way is Satan able to hinder and well what are the outcomes why would God allow that to be the case because of course we all know and believe that God would have to be in control you know even when we go back to uh, what we learn about Satan in the Old Testament we learn very quickly that he can't do what God doesn't let him do so Satan hindering him was true but, but God was permitting it um, in these circumstances so let's start at verse 17 and, and think about what he says about um, how he's feeling and what his desires were. He says, we were taken from you for a short time. And, you know, the idea there uh, of taken from you is, is really, it wasn't really what he wanted. It, it wasn't what his heart's desire would have been. Paul, as we read uh, his, what we call his missionary journeys, as we think about what he did in his gospel preaching and then going back to different places he usually went back and strengthened confirmed uh, encouraged in fact it, it seems to be a characteristic of his teaching and I trace it back to apart from the fact obviously the Holy Spirit put it on his mind to do it but I trace it back to what were the first things that he ever did in Christian service that we know about let's put it that way uh, and you go back to the, when, when Barnabas went to Antioch and you remember that Barnabas, if you want to turn to it, it's in Acts chapter 11. 
Uh, and Antioch uh, goes up to uh, sorry Antioch is a place Barnabas is the person so Barnabas he goes up to Antioch okay I found this on the web for Antioch <laughs> thank you very much that's never happened to me before I have had a few incidents with my phone on the platform but not that one um, we might have got some good information there but we'll just, we'll just leave it uh, so Barnabas is in Antioch and well you know he get, arrives there he's amazed at what he discovers look at verse 23 of Acts 11 he came and he saw the grace of God that's interesting isn't it he saw the grace of God how do you see grace he saw the behaviour he saw the attitudes he saw the activities he saw the Christian virtues and qualities that God was producing in these people and he saw the grace of God and he was glad uh, there are great lessons there, we mustn't stay with them but you know, isn't it great to be encouraged when you see other people really doing well as Christians not just being excited about what is happening in our lives but he sees the grace of God he's glad and he encourages them and what's the first thing he does? well he exhorts them that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord so he stimulates them and encourages them and we'll come back to some of those ideas because Paul uh, reminds us in, in verses 1 to 5 that that's part of what he wanted to do for the Christians to establish them and to encourage them, to comfort them but at this point in time uh, Antioch uh, I'm going to tell you it's Antioch all the time aren't I? but Barnabas uh, realises that he can't meet all the needs of these Christians so he goes off to find Saul and when he finds him he brings him to Antioch and for 12 months, Barnabas and Saul teach the believers. There's a lot of good lessons there. And one being this, one person can't meet every Christian's need. And that's why in a local church you have overseers and you have some elders with the... Well, all elders should have an ability to teach, but you have some who, have, who spend their time doing that. They labour in the word and teaching as the, the scripture says in 1st Timothy chapter 5 and you've got more, and that's why you have you very kindly invite other people to come from time to time um, to teach the scriptures because there's not one of us that can meet all the needs uh, and satisfy everything that a, a local church needs so he goes off to get Barnabas and together they preach for 12 months and so I, I discover that the very first account we have of Saul as he was known then uh, doing Christian service is strengthening Christians is encouraging Christians is teaching them the word of God and when Paul saw people saved that's what he did you read through Acts 14 and see that he sees people saved and then he very quickly goes back to the same places and he confirms them in their faith he strengthened them, strengthens them in his faith so I think Paul would have found this very, very frustrating. He says, we were taken from you for a short time, physically, not in our heart. You know, he, physical separation uh, doesn't mean you can't still be with people in your heart and your mind, that you can be praying for them, thinking of them, and we'll see some of the things that Paul has in his heart for them in a moment or two. And I guess it would have been quite difficult for him to accept that God's will was that he was to be where he was and not with them. So sometimes we can't always do what we feel is right in our hearts. And yet, God knows best about 
why we should be where we are and why we maybe can't always do the things that we feel that we should do. You know, an, another example of this would, would be found in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and it's in a slightly sadder circumstance it's where there's been sin that has taken place in the church in Corinth and he's really says to them in those verses that I'm absent in body but I'm present in spirit and really he's saying I, I wouldn't feel as if I should be there uh, to deal with this issue but that, that's not what God has permitted but I'm actually there in my in my heart, it's my desire to be there. Now, what did he do when he wasn't there? Well, look at chapter 3, back in First Thessalonians, chapter 3. You'll get this, whoever deals with the next section, in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, at night and day, I've been praying. I've been praying intensely, exceedingly. And we'd like to see your face. And we want to perfect or supply or complete that which is lacking in your faith so while he wasn't there what was he doing well we're learning here while he wasn't in Thessalonica with the believers he was constantly praying he's, he's a great example of how to uh, how our prayer life should be isn't he and he says I'm praying night and day so whether it was in the evening, through the night, there were times when he was praying. Whether it was during the day, there were times when he was praying. And what was he praying? Well, he was actually praying that God would open the door for him to go. So we thought yesterday about him praying that God would open a door so he could preach the gospel. And now he's praying that, that in these circumstances that God would open the door, that he might be able to get back to the Christians in Thessalonica, and he might be able to help them grow and mature what was lacking in their faith so absence produced in him a great desire he had a great longing to see them and a great desire to help them and that's good isn't it I hope we're like that as believers you know Paul had never been in Colossae and he writes this in Colossians chapter 2 if you knew what great conflict I have for you and for as many as have not seen my face that their hearts might be comforted, knit together, and so on. Paul says, I, I just want to be with you and to help you. So this isn't about taking meetings. This isn't about people knowing all that. This is about helping Christians. It's about building up people in their faith. And Paul's great desire was to help them. Now, we do live in the age where we have a, a few more benefits than, than he had. And you can use Zoom or some form of technology it's not quite the same but you, you can kind of bridge that gap a little more effectively than he could do he would have written a letter and depending on how efficient uh, the, the Roman mail system was it might have reached there in weeks might have got there and we'll think in a moment or two how God used these circumstances so that he did write and so that we benefit from those writings these writings today so he says in verse 18 I would have come time and again but you know Satan hindered us Satan hindered us you know there are various reasons why uh, people can't get to go back and help Christians that they really want to work with uh, Paul tells us about some of them uh, when he, he's writing uh, the book of Romans and in chapter 15 which our brother read to us a couple of times yesterday he's explaining 
and that he'd love to get back to, to Rome, he would love to see them. But actually what he's saying is, I've been hindered, verse 22 of Romans 15, I have been much hindered from coming to you. And he says, I, I really wanted to come, but I've been striving to preach the gospel where no one else has preached before. So sometimes our service for God, that God has made clear for you to serve him in one kind of area. You can't do everything. So you can't help people there when you're working over here. So sometimes the hindrance isn't directly Satan. It is in this case. But sometimes it's because you're serving God. And because in serving God, uh, you've been told to focus on this area. But God will eventually... Uh, maybe move you to to help those Christians again and Paul is explaining to them in Rome that he hadn't got to them because he had service to do and and he had to preach the gospel and he wanted to reach people who'd never heard before but Satan had somehow hindered Paul Uh, Satan does want to hamper the work of God and we're not going to deal with how Satan operates too much just now because it's mentioned again in verse 5 of our second section it talks about the tempter which is a very clear reference to Satan so we'll think in a little more detail about how he operates in that verse I'm just thinking generally about the fact he sometimes hinders your work for God as he was hindering Paul from going back to Thessalonica I don't know how he did it I don't know what the circumstances were. But what I do know is this. That we would never have had First Thessalonians. If Paul had been able to go and visit them. So to use modern language. Satan shot himself in the foot. He he thought that he was hindering the work of God. But here Paul writes. And and he writes this letter. And we eventually get Second Thessalonians. And uh, that communication of truth. It's so precious that we're sitting in Fernley Gospel Hall in 2022 and we're studying it and we're benefiting from truth that we would never have known. I guess, well, Satan's not, he doesn't know all things, does he? So he would never have known that God would use this type of thing and the writing of scripture that God would call Paul to do at that period. And you can just multiply that. Think about when Paul ended up in, under house arrest in Romans, in Acts, the book of Acts chapter 28. And he's there for two years. And in that period, he, he writes what we now call the prison epistles. He writes, uh, uh, I wrote them down, I'm not great at remembering things as you probably guessed by now. But you know, in that period he writes Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon. So here, someone might say, well, we've wiped Paul out, he's, he's, he's sitting in a house in Rome, and what use is he to man or beast? Well, God says, he's immensious, because he's going to write these letters. And we read them, Colossians, the richness of truth, Ephesians, Philippians, and so on. Uh, and then there are other periods when he was imprisoned or restricted, and he wrote these other uh, letters that we have in the New Testament. In fact, he, he wrote an incredible amount when he was even travelling. You know, we reckon that he wrote First and Second Corinthians and Romans when he was most likely journeying, as you read, you know, what we call his third missionary journey. He was an incredible man, really, a man raised up of God. So Satan was hindering him, but God was still working out his purposes. 
And God was still using him profitably for the good of God's people. And God has got his purposes even in the down times and the difficult times. And you can think about that with other people like, like John and the Isle of Patmos and, and so on. And how God used them in circumstances that they would not have chosen to be in. Let's just think for a moment or two about uh, verses 19 and 20. Because in those verses we discover Paul is going to not so much now explain why he'd not been back. But he's going to highlight what is his deepest desires and joy he says for what is our hope our joy our crown of rejoicing are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming for you are our glory and joy you know just putting that very simply Paul's ultimate measure of success and joy was the spiritual prosperity of the Lord's people. That's what really made him tick. He wasn't so much thinking about what he would get, but he's thinking about the joy that will be so apparent in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. So it's the believers that are the prize, really, in one sense here. Paul says there's a crown, but, but this is a crown of rejoicing. And the prize is that these believers will be men and women who fill God with pleasure and therefore Paul and joy and God is glorified in their lives you know whenever you think about that and, and read through Paul has a lot of this type of stuff in his mind when he's writing both of these letters because in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 he's describing the coming of the Lord Jesus back to earth so I'm kind of careful just to be too dogmatic but predominantly uh, the, the, the kind of truth about the coming of the Lord Jesus is about his coming for the believers in the first letter. I wouldn't personally say every reference is just limited to that but that's the, the main thrust of it. He's coming back to the air. He's coming back to take us to be with himself. The dead will be raised and the living caught up and that's the main thrust of, of his coming. In the first letter he writes, the one you're studying. When he writes the second time, the main thrust, again not exclusively, but the main idea is that he's coming back with the Christians who are already with him. And he's coming back to the earth. Now turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And notice what it says, what will happen when he comes. So verse 7 says Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8 says he'll take vengeance on them that know not God that obey not the gospel. Uh, verse 9 talks about their, their, their eternal judgment. But I want you to notice verse 10. That's my main point. It, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Now here's a wonderful thing. You know, we've been reading at the end of, of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians that Paul is saying the believers are his glory and joy. And I think he's reflecting the heart of God. He's reflecting how God feels about his people. He, he's been saying that you are our hope. You know, our guarantee of something that's going to happen in the future. You are our joy. You're our crown of rejoicing. And you come to 2 Thessalonians 
And Paul says, you know, when we come back with Christ, uh, you'll need to go to maybe Matthew 24 and Revelation 19 to see this described. It's going to come, it's going to be magnificent. He's coming out of heaven. He's coming with his holy angels, his mighty angels. He's coming on a white horse. He's going to come with power and majesty and glory. And you'd say, this is tremendous. The Lord Jesus, who was despised and rejected and humiliated and crucified, is going to come back to our world in glory and majesty. And we'll be with him. But, but notice what it says. He shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. You and I will be the the visual evidence of what Christ is and what Christ has done. <laughs> That's unbelievable, isn't it? He'll be glorified through us. He'll be admired in and through us. That's a work of grace, isn't it? Mm -hmm. the, the Lord Jesus, the, He's already mighty. He's already glorious. But He allows us somehow because of the work of grace and salvation to reflect the glory of his work and the beauty of his person and the admiration of the world will be upon Christ but reflected through us in that future day so go back to chapter 2 as we, we finish at the end of that chapter no wonder he says this is a crown of rejoicing now there are a list of crowns in, in the New Testament and they're very interesting and uh, I don't know what you think about you know I used to think when I was young well, it would be great to get a crown you know and, and you get a crown and that would be a wonderful thing but I don't think that's so much the idea you know whether it's this crown of rejoicing or there's a crown of life and there's a crown of righteousness and there's a crown of uh, glory and so on it's not the crown by the way that you know, the Queen wears, or the royalty wears. It, it's more, you go to the Olympics, or you go to the Commonwealth Games, and you don't now get a crown on your head, but you would have traditionally. You get a wreath of some type, you get, you know, something, quite often flowers, that is uh, some evidence that you're a victor, that you've won, that you've achieved. That's that type of a, a symbol that's been spoken about here. The crown of glory, or the crown of rejoicing in this passage. And then I got to the book of Revelation when I was uh, reasonably young and thinking about it and I saw that actually they take those crowns and they cast him, cast the crowns at his feet. That, uh, that's the point. The point is the crowns are the evidence of what God has done. The evidence of the work of God in your life. And when you come to me before him, you will gratefully throw them at his feet or, or place them at his feet in recognition that he's the glorious one. He's the victor. He's the one who's brought you through and, and you're a, a, an overcomer. I, I believe every Christian's an overcomer. A, a, and you're the one that has, by his grace, been presented in his presence, blameless, because of his work in you. No wonder Paul's excited. He says that this is going to happen in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. And you say, well, what coming is that? Well, I wouldn't limit it to his coming for the church. The word, and I'm no expert on, on Bible words, but the word has more in it than just a single point in an event. It's probably got more the idea that he's coming for us 
And then, well, it will be seven years between that and when he comes back to earth. But he's coming with us. And that might be just one big event that starts that is coming for the church. And he takes us up and in heaven these various events will take place. Somewhere in the heavens. And then he'll come back with us as we thought about in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. It's his coming. Don't limit it to just when he comes for the church. Oh, that will be true. But I think the greatest evidence of what God has done will be seen when he comes back with his people to earth. Okay, let's turn to read the first five verses of of chapter 3. And I I know that you'll have to dig deeper, I'm sure. Hopefully you do. Maybe Paul was, he didn't tell me you'd all be studying the passage this afternoon. So you'll probably say to me afterwards, you missed this and you didn't tell me that one. And that wasn't correct because you've obviously all studied it, so that's good. But let's read the first five verses of chapter 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear... We thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, for verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter having have tempted you, and our labour be in vain. I just see the heart of an elder, the heart of a shepherd, as he's longing to discover how are they doing. There was no text, there was no whatsapp, there was no zip, there was no... He didn't know. He's longing. And it's time to find out more. And he makes a personal sacrifice for the benefit of these Thessalonian believers. He is left at Athens alone. So he makes a choice to send them so that he can find out how are these believers doing. Quite a sacrifice, isn't it? Will we make sacrifices uh, so that we can ensure the welfare and the well-being and the the ongoing good and development of our fellow believers? The other thing I noticed just in passing, because you need to read Acts 17 to see some of the background of this. He didn't waste his time when he was... You know, when he he left, he sent them off, he was left. If, If I read it correctly in terms of time frame, he's... He's preaching in Athens. He's witnessing. He's actually a pretty scary, standing in front of the intelligentsia of his day. And he's going to witness to the person of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So, just a little reminder. There may be times in life when you have to put your tools down and you're not allowed to do what you expected to do. But try and use those times profitably. God has created that space for you for a purpose. But notice what he says about Timothy. Timothy's a great character. And some of these men in the New Testament, Timothy and Titus, just doing a little character study on them, uh, really teaches you a lot about Christian life and, and service and, and character. First of all, he says he's our brother. In fact, if we read um, some of the other references correctly, it would seem as if Paul had led him to Christ, but he says he's my brother. Because he's in a relationship with this man as you're in a relationship with every believer but he says he's 
a minister of God. And that's interesting that because it could, some translations say he's a co-worker with God. Some translations say he's God's servant. Some even are a little more precise and he says he works under God. Well that's true isn't it? Uh, Everybody who serves God is working under him. You know we report to God, we report to the Lord Jesus. In fact Paul when he writes to the, the Corinthian believers... He says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9, We are laborers together with God. Stop and think about that for a moment. And you go out on Friday morning. <laughs> uh, don't do it Thursday morning, apparently you can't do it on your own. But um, uh, You're not just working with whoever else is in your group. You're working with God. You get out those leaflets. When you're in Sunday school, you're, you're working with God. Whatever you do in service for him... Uh, You're a fellow labourer with God. Paul often speaks about people as being his fellow labourers. He works with them. And that's a wonderful thing. It's great to have people we can work with. People who can, um, we can encourage each other and strengthen each other. But this is even a higher level. Timothy's not just his brother. But he's a a co-worker with God. And, And that really lifts our service for God to a very high level. Another very simple point, he trusted Timothy. It's good to have people you can trust. Here's the apostle, and you would say he's really important. As I said yesterday, I don't think he thought of himself like that. But, well, he sends Timothy because if you read the other references to Timothy, he had really, a, you know, a great confidence in him. He trusted him. He was prepared to to work with him in in some sensitive areas to know how these believers were going. So he says he's a co-worker with God. He's our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ. But what's Timothy being sent to do? Well, two things that are mentioned to us in verse 2. To establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Your faith is really important. God wants you to be strengthened in your faith. Now, that will only happen through knowing the presence of God and applying the word of God to your life. So, the faith, you probably know, is the expression in the New Testament that describes the scriptures. So, we, the, the faith is important. That's why well, we're all, it's, kind of, it's a truism for you all you're all sitting here listening to the Bible being taught and so you're obviously interested in knowing about the faith knowing about the word of God but the outcome of that is to strengthen your faith it's to give you a closer walk with God to increase your trust in God to in, uh, improve your relationship with God so there are two things that uh, Paul is asking Timothy to do number one to establish them in their faith I'm going to leave you to look at some of these references. But let me just give you them and you can think about them. Your faith will be strengthened through praying for each other. I see that in in Luke 22. I'll read this one to you. The Lord Jesus is speaking about um, Peter and and Peter's great uh, denial. And the Lord Jesus of course predicted it. But he said Satan has desired to have you. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. Now, Peter still made his mistake, but his faith was not destroyed because he was going to be restored 
He was going to come again into his, the blessing of his relationship with the Lord. And he was going to be used to strengthen other believers. So we can establish and strengthen our, believer, our fellow believers through prayer. Paul also in Romans chapter 1 says a very interesting thing. He says, I, I want to come to you. That was another passage where uh, Paul tells us that he was desperate to get to a place and to help the believers. And he says, I I want to come and have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. And he says, I long to see you that I might impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you might be established. So Paul's actually saying, I want to come so that through the the ability that God has, or or the, the responsibility that God has given to me, that I will share with you something of the grace of God, the, the truth of God, through the word of God, that you might be strengthened. So, if you're interested, have put the word established into your phone or, or whatever you use, or if you still use a concordance, I doubt if anybody does, maybe the older people do. And look at that word establish. And you see that it, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn through other references in scripture. That we can be strengthened through prayer, through the imparting of a spiritual gift, and that it, strengthening us produces holiness in First Thessalonians chapter three, and it results in good works and good words in our lives as believers. So one of the reasons Timothy was going was to establish them, but the other was to comfort them. And comfort is more the idea of to encourage and to exhort. See, we need both things. We need to be strengthened in our faith. We need to know more of the Word of God. But sometimes we need someone to put our arm around us. We need someone to to encourage us. We need someone to draw alongside us. And actually, if you... Well, you've probably done this as you're working through 1 Thessalonians. There's... uh, Let me just count them up. There's seven references in 1 Thessalonians where Paul talks about this. Let me just point out a couple of them. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 11. Paul says, You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. That word exhorted is the same word that we've got here. Comfort. He's saying, I I was like a father to you. I drew alongside you. And he says... The reason was that you might be not just stronger in your knowledge of the things of God, but encouraged in your spirit, in your heart, strengthened and comforted as as a believer. He says in verse number 7, which you'll get to in your next study, that when I got the news back from Timothy, I was comforted, I was encouraged, I was strengthened. And I'll leave you to look for the other five. They're quite easy to find as you work through chapter 4 and chapter 5. But Paul is saying these two things are really important. And I'm sending Timothy because I want to know how you're doing. And I want you to be stronger as believers. And I want you to be encouraged as believers. But then in verses 3 and 4 he says to them. And my other reason for sending Timothy was. I, I understand that you're upset and concerned and worried about the troubles and the persecution and the problems that I'm going through 
He says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. So he's saying, I don't want your faith to be shaken by my troubles. In effect, he's saying in verse number 3, this is the will of God for my life. For you yourselves know that we are appointed, destined. This is God's purpose. Paul knew that his life was not going to be uh, a smooth passage. Paul knew from the moment he got saved that to be a follower of Christ was going to be tough and difficult. Do you remember the words of Acts 9 verse 16? That are spoken, I think it's to Ananias. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Saul of Tarsus, the day of his conversion, was going to be confronted with this fact. Well, three days later, whenever Ananias reaches him. That God was going to show him that he would suffer for the name of Christ. But when, I, when Paul is then going round these various churches that believers and churches established in Acts chapter 14, it says this about him. That he went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now we've been singing about the kingdom and it was wonderful. And by the way, I could have just said, well, we'll not bother speaking tonight, we'll just keep on singing. I was so enjoying it. We're in a meeting of 18 people and you don't get that type of singing and it's really good uh, when you come and, and you're encouraged. We sing about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God, as you know, is a spiritual thing today. We're, we're under his authority. But there's a day coming when his actual physical kingdom will come. But Paul is saying that through many difficulties, tribulations, persecution, we'll enter. So please, we thought about Nabila in Pakistan and and I was saying to Alan I, I kind of run out of time and I know I speak too fast and I was trying to fit too much in yesterday but I could have told you story after story of, of believers and, and what a change in their life but what a price they paid to follow Christ now your troubles might not be like that in the sense that at the moment we're relatively free to be Christian I don't know if in your lifetime I'm 60 you know, if I live to 80 or 90, well, that'll be uh, a long time. But in your lifetime, if you live to be 60 or uh, 70, you might find that in our country, it's a lot different. And it might be that through many tribulations, we have to enter into, we, we will live through though, to come into the enjoyment of the kingdom the kingdom of God. Now, Paul was worried that they were disheartened, that they were disillusioned, that their faith had been shaken. And so he says in verse 5, For this cause when I could no longer forbear, I couldn't take it any longer. So there's nothing wrong with running out of steam, with getting frustrated. Uh, obviously we've learned already from chapter 2, we have to submit to the will of God. But Paul took action when it was possible. But what's the driving force? Well, the driving force is the points he's made earlier. I wanted to know how you were getting on. I wanted you to be strengthened. I wanted you to be encouraged. I was scared that you got downhearted. But he says, I have another one. I sent to know your faith, in verse 5 he says, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labour be in vain. He says, I know this. And Paul will tell us this in Second Corinthians chapter 2 as well. I know Satan is clever. Satan is strategic. He's crafty. 
He's deceitful. And he says, I- I'm really concerned that by some means, whatever method... I was looking at, a while ago I wrote this down, uh, Sidlow Baxter, who was a, a preacher a long time ago, he said about this verse, Satan uses all manner of strategy to turn souls from the truth. And he goes through, uh, he says he uses a, a, a sieve to sift them. You know, like somebody, maybe you don't, when you're doing your garden, you put the soil in it, you try and make sure that you get rid of, get, keep the weeds. And, well, you can tell I don't understand much about that. But, but he uses things to, to work in your life to really cause trouble. He uses tricks and craftiness and, uh, and cunning and deceit uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 2. He puts weeds into the lives of the believer to try and... Um, to flood out and to damage you so that your life cannot grow and be fruitful for God. In Ephesians chapter 6, he, he's constantly attacking the believer. And he writes in Peter that he's like a roaring lion trying to terrify the Christian. And then of course we know from Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he comes like an angel sometimes to try and deceive the Christian. And Timothy writes about the traps that he puts in. What, what that man was saying was, the devil hasn't just one strategy. Sometimes you make life really comfortable for you so that, you know, you become very indolent and lazy and not too bothered about your Christian life because things are going well. Other times he will put, you know, discouragements in your life so that you think, well, what's the point of being a Christian? Thought God was going to bless me. You throw in the towel and you give up. Sometimes he, he comes uh, and you think it was all really godly and spiritual and good, but actually it's just... It's, it's wrong things just dressed up as good. And, and he uses strategy to try and... Paul was saying, I was concerned, I was worried, that by some means, the tempter, it's one of the titles of Satan, it's used about the Lord Jesus when he comes to tempt him in Matthew chapter 4. He came into the garden and he tricked Eve. We read in Second Corinthians 11. And Paul is saying, my concern was... That our labour would be in vain. What he's saying, all that work that we put in, that Satan would get a victory in your lives, and, and we wanted to know. And so he sends Timothy. You know, Paul's great desire is expressed to us not just at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but he says a similar thing in Philippians 2. He says to the believers there, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Or labour in vain. Paul had a great passion for people. A great love for those who were believers. A great desire for their spiritual prosperity. As I close, let me just ask you a series of questions. Thinking about chapter 2. What are we working towards? What are your spiritual ambitions? What would you be most disappointed about if it didn't work out in life as you planned? And what are you prepared to do to ensure that these things that are so important, the prosperity of Christians, the growth of Christians, the welfare of Christians, what are you prepared to do to ensure it happens? I put a little list of five things and some of them are dealt with in the next section so it will be developed in your next uh, Bible teaching session. We need to pray. We need to communicate well. We need to teach. We need to encourage. And we need to make personal sacrifice for the welfare of our fellow believers.
trust the Lord will encourage us and bless us through his word this evening let's just pray dear God we give thanks for these passages of scripture that are left on record for us so that we might understand a little of the heart of what Christian life is about and Christian service that we might see something in the example of men like the Apostle Paul and Timothy of how we should think and what our ambition should be and what actions we need to take and how we should seek to live for the glory of God for the pleasure of the Lord Jesus which is ultimately expressed through the blessing and maturity and development of his people we remember that there are believers tonight going through difficult times there are believers who are discouraged and have been trapped and deceived and they are in a difficult circumstance and we pray that maybe we would be the people that might be able to encourage them, strengthen them in their faith comfort them, maybe at times even correct them and point them back to the right way we just commend every believer to thee in this room this evening and pray that thy hand would be upon us and that we might know thy presence and thy ongoing blessing in our lives as we seek to live for thee and serve thee. We ask these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.